amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us with Three Women Three Ways. It's not going down. There we go. Uh, we tackle some uh, some significant topics. Let's put it that way. Serious topics sometimes. Sometimes we have fun, but right now we're talking about another rather serious topic, and that topic is protection orders. And we've all heard about protection orders. We encourage women to get a domestic violence uh, protection orders when they've been abused. And, um, you know, it's seen as a good thing. It's also seen as something that isn't going to really protect you. I mean, it's just a piece of paper. But the reason that it's useful is, first of all, some people do pay attention to pieces of paper. Secondly of all, you've got a paper trail established if you need it later on. And it's just generally seen as a pretty, pretty good thing. Nevertheless, there can be drawbacks to seeking a protection order. And we have two researchers with us today who uh, did a study on protection orders and what it costs women who have been uh, who uh, have sought protection orders. Uh, Lisa, welcome. Thank you so much, Heather. It's great to be here. You're welcome. Lisa Brush is a professor of sociology and of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the University of Pittsburgh. Her first book, Gender and Governance, which fascinates me. I have to confess I haven't read it yet, but I'm fascinated, and I put it on call at the library. Um, She also wrote a second book called Poverty, Battered Women, and Work in U.S. Public Policy. So this is a woman who's gotten her teeth firmly into the the topics of uh, 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 that are appropriate for us for today, and she is right now looking into preventing adolescent relationship abuse and teen dating violence. So thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you for joining us. Is there something I left out of your bio that you'd like us to know? That pretty much covers it. Thanks very much, Heather. Okay, and also with us is Melanie Hughes. Melanie is also an associate professor at social of sociology at the University of Pittsburgh, and she uses quantitative uh, research, and and that's the the research that involves all sorts of numbers and statistics. For those of you who are not clear exactly what quantitative research is, and she studies women's empowerment. And she focuses on groups of women who are particularly marginalized. She co-authored Women, Politics, and Power, A Global Perspective. And uh, she focuses on women in politics and had a lot of things published in journals like the American Sociological Review, American Political Science Review, and Social Forces, which is not a journal I'm familiar with. So I'm learning all sorts of things already, even before we get started, ladies. Melanie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Heather. Melanie, I'm going to start by asking you, what drew you into this particular area of study? Well, it was actually Lisa. Uh, She's a colleague of mine here at the University of Pittsburgh, and she had been engaging in a long-term study um, focused on uh, violence against women and protection orders in Allegheny County here in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and we just got to talking about her research, and I was quite interested given my uh, broader research agenda studying uh, women's political empowerment and vulnerable groups of women. Um, and I have sort of the quantitative numbers oriented, and she had some great data, so we got together and started working on it. <laughs> great data makes always makes for a good match, doesn't it? <laughs> well, Lisa, what what brought you to the particular topic of your study, the protection orders issue? I first started thinking about protective orders and poverty and violence against women in the very early 90s before uh, President Clinton signed the Welfare Reform Act. 
because um, there was a pretty strong effort among advocates for battered women to make sure that the work requirements and time limits that people were talking about imposing on welfare didn't um, really seriously disadvantage battered women, some of whom can use welfare in order to protect themselves from some of the worst economic upheaval that accompanies being abused. So I actually was working with the head of the Allegheny County um, Department of Public Welfare, and we were I was raising the issue of what are what happens when the women who are receiving welfare in your programs um are being abused. And she said, I can tell you exactly what happens. For example, we had um one of the women who was in our welfare to work program who uh the the night before she was supposed to take her computer certification exam her boyfriend said, if you take this exam, I'll break your fingers. And the connections between battering and work and women's economic independence and welfare became very, very clear at that point. And so that was the start of all of this. Wow. Yeah, it, it's. Um, it, I think so often we see people who have never experienced domestic violence, never uh, um, really actually seen it firsthand, their perception of it is so different. And when we look at women who are on the welfare rolls who've been uh, subject to abuse and everything, it it gives you such a different picture. It's a very different picture than I think what most of us think of before we're aware of uh, interpersonal violence. Do you agree with that? I think that's really right, and I think that part of what got me interested in trying to understand the role specifically of protective orders in all of this was the way that in the United States we basically assume that for women who are subjected to control and abuse and sabotage by their boyfriends and husbands, um, that work is going to be the way out. And uh, current U.S. policies and practices privilege work as a remedy for abuse. And the the reasoning there is pretty basic, right? It's that women are especially vulnerable to abuse when they depend on the abuser for shelter and food and child care and emotional connection. But employment tends to be the go-to choice because it provides a woman with some independent economic resources and it gets her out of the house, which is where everybody thinks domestic abuse happens, Mm -hmm. and it builds her supportive networks outside of the abusive relationship, and it's, it's very central to being a responsible parent and citizen and adult. But we we thought that the reality might be a little more complicated than this. So researchers and activists have known for a really long time that many women are trapped in both poverty and abuse, and that those two traps reinforce one another. So abusive partners can sabotage or interfere with women's work, which complicates the idea that work is the way out. Well, and there's research has repeatedly shown that there's a huge economic disadvantage and hit for women who, um, pardon the pun there, um, who experience domestic violence. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Um, and, and, of course, one of the best ways to control somebody is financially, you know, economically. So, you know, I, I, I just see absolutely exactly what you're talking about. So how do we get to protection orders? Uh, for your study. But you know what? I'm negligent here. I need to put out our call-in number. Please give us a call. If you have questions about uh, the impact of protection orders, protective orders, they're known by different names in different counties, Um, but if you have questions about uh, the impact that the study showed, please give us a call, 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. 
You can also click on the chat room. I've got the chat room open, and you can ask us a question if you don't feel like calling in, and I'll be happy to convey that question or relay it, I guess, to our guests. So, okay, so how do we get to the protective orders? Those should those should be fine. I mean, once a woman gets it right, it shouldn't have, I mean, it's just a piece of paper for a court telling the abuser he has to stay away. Um, so why would you think, what would lead to the research that made you think that there might be an economic fallout for a victim from seeking a protection order? Melanie, do you want to? Sure. Um, Well, we do know that there is a negative uh, relationship, right, between abuse and uh, women's economic outcomes, right? So we understand that there is that negative economic relationship. We also know that protective orders are something that are supposed to stand in the way of abuse, right? They, They should put an end to that abuse or at least help women try to put an end to abuse. So that raises the natural question, does petitioning for a protective order or obtaining a restraining order actually help women put an end to the negative effects of abuse on their earnings and workforce, uh, workplace attachment? Okay. And so... You decided to do this research. I was, I, I, I'm, you're probably hearing me shuffling papers. I have the study in front of me, and for some reason I'm not finding it right this second in my, my pile of, my stacks and piles, my, my, my system here. Um, but it, as I recall, it was a six-year study, or did it just use data from six years? It did just it used data over six years, uh, okay, so right. uh, Lisa was able to get administrative data from a number of different sources and match records uh, following women over that six year period. So we had information on their earnings before they petitioned for the uh, for the restraining order, during the time that they would have petitioned, and then for at least a year after, and sometimes longer. Okay, all right. Now, um, uh, Lisa, when you um, formulated your questions for, for, you know, how you were going to look at the data, what particular things were you looking for? I mean, obviously, maybe income. I mean, what were some of the the things that you were going to uh, measure in order to uh, find the answers to your research questions? Well, there are four logical possibilities for what could happen to women's earnings over time when they uh, petition for a restraining order. And the the logical possibilities also exist in the, uh, in the research literature and in the theory about these things. So uh, it's possible that um, women who petition for a protective order could experience um, a short-term bump in their earnings as uh, the protective order kicked in and meant that they could um, actually go to work, that the abuser couldn't interfere or sabotage their work. And so we we thought it was uh, possible that if they were out of the house and if they were able to have uh, a source of earnings that might give them some leverage, um, then they could reduce the ways that uh, abuse interferes with work, which we've known happens for a long time. And But we also thought it was plausible that there could be a short-term shock to women's earnings and um, that the, the period right around the time uh, that they were petitioning could be one of a lot of tumult and a lot of difficulty, you know, if they have to find housing and if they have to uh, perhaps change jobs, maybe move because of um, the abuse, that that might coincide with the period of a protective order and be a shock to their earnings. We also thought that um, having a protective order in place might make it possible for women to actually boost their earnings in the longer term, that they would have an upward shift in their earnings. And we also thought from uh, some feminist theory that we had been 
looking at and some other results that suggested that uh, women's long-term earnings might not, in fact, recover from the shock if they experienced it related to uh, petitioning. So uh, the data that I had were data on earnings, um, data on petitioning for a protective order, and uh, being granted a follow-up hearing, and data on welfare receipt and whether women had had a welfare spell. And we had those data with dates attached to them so we could figure out the order of things that were happening. And we could see, we could compare women to themselves over time and see if the the quarters where they petitioned and the quarters after they petitioned, if their earnings were um, significantly different from the, the earnings trajectories that they had in the quarters before they had petitioned. Okay. So let me back up a little bit. You're, you you identified four possibilities of what uh, – you, well, I suppose technically five possibilities that their income wasn't affected at all. Right. Um, or, or their economic status. We're not just looking at income. Are we looking at income or are we looking at economic status? We're looking status? at earnings. Earnings. We're okay. At earnings. And so there's, you know, one possibility is that it's just not affected at all. The other mm-hmm. possibility is that that could go up brief, you know, quickly go up for a, a, a while um, as right, they're free to go about their business. The other one would be that it would be going up for long term. The other one would be that they go down briefly and then that they go down, that the earnings go down long term. So are those the possibilities that we're looking at here? Exactly. Okay. All right. So in order to try and answer those questions, what you did is you pulled the, all this data and you started looking at it. And what were some of the the things that you initially found? Well, I think straight away we saw overwhelming evidence that the period right around when women petition is one of tremendous instability. So it was all the way across the board. And we broke up the data in so many different ways, looking at different groups, um, looking by you know, income levels, looking in some cases we had data on different racial groups. So we were breaking up this data in every way that you can. And what was so evident right out of the gate was that pretty much everybody was experiencing tremendous financial instability or instability in their earnings in the time right around when they were petitioning for a protective order. Yeah, and that seems kind of logical, right? I mean, if something's yeah. going on that's that's in your life that's that's causing you to seek a protection order, that's a lot of upheaval, and, of course, that would seem logically to have an impact on your income. Um, I do have a question in our chat room, and one of those is, were women on welfare before you studied them or, or during before the study, uh, or I'm trying to phrase this differently, were any of the women you studied already receiving welfare or were they all gainfully employed? We definitely had uh, women who were receiving welfare or what technically they call a welfare spell. They had a welfare spell. Some of them had it before they petitioned. Some of them had it afterwards. And welfare receipt really matters in this case. So the women who were on welfare before they petitioned for the restraining order, don't experience the same kind of losses uh, in their earnings as all the other women, including women who peti- who um, apply for welfare after they petition for a protective order. So there's well, if you're some already on welfare, you've you've already experienced great losses. I mean, it would seem logical to me. Um, that's right. I mean. It, if you're already in the basement, you don't have too much farther down to go uh, economically. Um, well, so. well I, I do want to point out, though, that we looked for that uh, in the study. So there are some kind of technical ways that you can look for uh, what they call ceiling effects. So is the question that you know women only experienced gains because they had nowhere to go but up? 
And at least from what we can see is that, you know, there's evidence that they did better than women at comparable levels of income who were not receiving welfare. So it didn't appear to be just the fact that these women were poor and thus they had nowhere to go but up. They, in fact, had different outcomes than comparable women who had similar levels of earnings but were not a part of the welfare system at the time that they petitioned for their protective order. We're getting such good questions in the chat room. Give us a call, 646-378-0430. One of our listeners wants to know what were the economic, excuse me, what were the economic uh, statuses of women before you studied? Were they all poor? Were some of them rich? What was their economic status before they sought the protection order? Was it all over the board? Uh, So I do have to say that for the most part, we are talking about a fairly economically disadvantaged group of women. So compared to the population overall, uh, on average, their earnings tend to be a little bit lower, um, and that's not surprising given existing research that tends to suggest that women who are in poverty tend to be trapped by abuse and poverty together. But there are some women in our study that have sort of uh, lower middle and middle income. So probably a handful of uh, higher income women, but most of them are in the lower to lower middle range. You know, it's interesting, this is just an aside, but I did a little bit of research about um, upper economic level women experiencing domestic violence. And while in a lot of situations it would seem that things are a little easier for them, they can afford a lawyer, they can do this, they can do that. The fact is that many of those women have been so controlled financially that just because their household is high income doesn't mean they have access to it. And so it's an interesting little phenomenon, I think, in some situations where women who you would expect to, you know, financially not have any real worries about this, that in fact they can be quite burdened um, and and experience the same kinds of problems that extremely low-income women experience. Um, interesting. interesting. That's really a great point, Heather. And um, given the fact that there was actually not a lot of income heterogeneity among these women they were they were all pretty significantly disadvantaged um the the dollar amounts that we were able to calculate um by calculating what women's earnings would have been if they had just continued on the trajectory that they had before they petitioned and compare that to the actual trajectory that we were able to calculate given their earnings data. Um, In the worst-case scenario, they lose about a month's average rent um, for each year of the time that elapses after they petition, which might not seem like a lot, but um, being short a month's rent is a pretty significant economic shortfall. And from what we can see, women are not recouping these losses later. So it's a matter of actual uh, wage justice and earnings equity, right? It's not just that there's this wage gap, but there's an entire population of women who are essentially falling behind not just comparable men, but they're falling behind what their own earnings would have been if they hadn't had to go through this incredibly turbulent process. So going back to our five questions uh, from when we started the show, um, you learned that, well, yes, there is an impact. There is a change in their earnings. Um, You learned that there is a short-term bump where it might go up briefly, but that that's not necessarily consistent and it's not necessarily um, uh, uh, across the board, right? Not exactly. Yeah, so we found uh, pretty universal evidence of a negative shock in the short term. So almost everybody had a negative short-term decline in their earnings growth in the, the period right around when they petitioned. 
Okay. Um, and then so we also we've got a little group that might we've got a little group that might have a bump briefly, but almost always it is in fact a, a decrease in those earnings at least immediately. Um, and what the what you were finding is about a month's worth of income just down. What about long term? So we have uh, found evidence both of the the short-term shock, right, the short-term shock meaning the the few months right after women are petitioning, but also looking a year out from petitioning, we're seeing longer-term losses. So for all of the women in our study, we were able to look at them at least a year out from when they petitioned, and that's when we actually calculate the the month's uh, rent that that is lost. So that's over that entire year after they petition. They're, in fact, losing a full month's rent. So it's particularly bad for almost everybody right around when they petition, but we were hopeful that maybe women would bounce back, and we were not seeing evidence of that for you know for most of the women in the study. Of course, the exception okay. is... Uh, one that Lisa just pointed out for women who were on welfare uh, before they petitioned the court for a restraining order don't see those longer-term economic stalls in the same way that the rest of our uh, uh, the population of women we studied experienced. So okay. overwhelming shocks and lots of stalls in women's earnings uh, pretty much across the board except for one smaller group of women. Okay. All right. And we went a year out in the data, right? Yes. So that was at least a year, uh, depending upon when women petitioned. So if women petitioned a little bit earlier in our study, we had longer periods of time to follow them afterwards. So if they Mm -hmm. petitioned in, you know, like the second year of our study, that meant since we had six years of data, we had a much longer period to look after. So for a smaller set of the women, we did look beyond that first year, and even then we were not seeing that women were recouping the losses that they had experienced. So whatever happened... It wasn't a matter of, of, well, they just, you know, lost it and then they they didn't get that back, but then they went back to to point A. It was a matter of, you know, kind of a, 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 a downward curve. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's not necessarily that they are uh, experiencing a downward curve. It is that, you know, most people experience economic growth over time, right? We usually do a little bit better, right? We get raises uh, because of experience, uh, job job experience. We tend to make more money because of inflation. All of these things, we tend to make a little bit more money over time. So your average person experiences just a, at a baseline, just typical level, a little bit of growth. So what we see for these women is uh, in the short term, sometimes actual economic decline. So fall off, people actually losing money um, significantly. And then in the longer term, what we see is slower growth. So women were making a lot more progress in the months prior to petitioning, but then after petitioning and up to a year after, they're growing at a much slower rate than they were you know, a year before they petitioned for the restraining order. Does and that how make sense? Does that, yes, it does. And so how does that compare with a woman, or, or you know, I mean, how how does that compare with women in general? Do so we have data, are, um, yeah, so we have data overall on sort of mean levels of how people were doing in Allegheny County at the time. Um, and we also have comparable data for women who were on, who, who had experienced welfare, um, a welfare spell at any point during the study, but that but that did not petition. And for these women, you know, a lot of them are experiencing higher rates um, and uninterrupted rates of growth. So it's not that you know we could explain these declines by um, you know economic down downturns or or anything else. It does appear to be related to the petitioning. They do look to be different 
from comparable women who did not petition for a restraining order. But it is important to say that the bulk of our study really focuses on the petitioning women themselves and comparing their earnings to themselves over time, not comparing petitioners to non-petitioners. And, of course, we don't have any way of measuring economic things for uh, uh, or earnings changes for women who might be experiencing abuse but who did not petition uh, for a protection order. Um, exactly. So we don't have, we, we, we don't we have any it. marker of yeah. women's actually having been abused. All we have are the data about their having petitioned for a restraining order. So we can't we can't get inside the black box of the relationship between abuse and earnings, and we can't get into the black box about the relationship between um, filing a protective order for uh, women who... We, we can't compare women who are abused who petition to women who are abused who don't petition. We just don't yeah, have the data. Yeah, that's impossible. Nobody, so nobody has data. It's always important... Yeah, so it's always really important um, that we we don't make assumptions about causality. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I remember as a as a kid reading a study that said, yeah, I don't even like studies when I was a kid. I'm reading a study um, <laughs> that <laughs> I was one of those, okay, um, <laughs> where it, it was, you know, the, I remember seeing a headline in the paper, you know, smoking causes wrinkles because the study uh, found a relationship between deeper and more profuse wrinkles on women's faces for smokers than non-smokers. And, of course, the, the newspaper head that I saw said, Smoking causes wrinkles. Well, you know that's not what the study showed. The study showed that women who smoke have more tend to have more wrinkles. That's it. it you know, maybe they're smoking because they're more stressed out and they're frowning more. I mean, we don't know, right? Same thing here. Do we? You know, what kind of conclusions were you able to draw uh, from your your study? So I, I think mean, clearly you you, we can't, clearly point. we can't say getting a protection order is going to hurt you financially. We can't really say that, right? Absolutely. And in fact, we don't want to say that. right? So we want to make the point that we really believe that the root cause of the effects on women's economic outlook is not necessarily petitioning itself. It's the abuse that likely occurred at the time or leading up to the petition. So it's much more likely, based on what we know, that it's the abuse that is causing the problems, right? It's that women have to take time off work to go to court. It's that women have to take time off work to go to uh, the doctor to get uh, support for any sort of medical bills, any sort of mental health support that they need. Right? The abuse itself may have longer-term health consequences, mental health consequences for women that affect their work and earnings life for much longer after the abuse. It's not that we are suggesting to women you should not go get a protection order. We're pointing out that getting a protection order is not necessarily going to be a magic bullet for women, nor is just saying, well, women should go to work because that will give them the independence to get out of an abusive situation. We're pointing out that there are these complicated policy um, situations in which women may be trapped in abusive situations and trapped by poverty, and filing for a protective order may not be enough uh, to help them you know, economically and on some of these other outcomes. Right. Okay. So, um, Lisa, what what can we learn from this study? Well, I think there are several really important lessons. Um, one of them is that welfare can buffer recipients from some of the worst economic effects that are associated with abuse and with women's efforts like petitioning uh, to put an end to that abuse. So welfare is a really crucial resource for some women in abusive relationships, and rolling back welfare programs, tying them to work requirements, attaching time limits, um, and basically taking a punitive approach to 
welfare can put uh, a lot of women in a very dangerous position. I think that's one really important policy lesson. Um, another important policy lesson that comes from the fact that it was really only the welfare recipients who had a spell before they petitioned uh, who were buffered from these effects is the notion that policymakers should consider providing economic supports for women who are trying to exit abusive situations no matter what their income level is. So currently, there are no income supports in place for women who are above the poverty line. And many of the women in our study are not wealthy. And lost income means that they're probably going to struggle to make ends meet. So lower middle and middle income women need economic support during this very tumultuous and difficult time. I think that's an important second lesson. Uh, Third, the notion that there are these long-term effects means that we have to be having uh, a different conversation about the the ways that physical and psychological effects of abuse can continue to impact women for months and even years into the future. So for policymakers and for welfare administrators, our results really underscore the need for those exemptions on time limits and the Murray Wellstone uh, family violence option in the Welfare Reform Act makes it possible to exempt welfare recipients who are abused from the work requirements and the time limits on welfare. And that's a really important set of exemptions, especially because they don't count against the total number of exemptions that uh, the state can use and still be in compliance with the requirements of welfare reform. Um, I think one and, of the... Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to say that one of the big things that I have just been thinking about for a long time and that um, this research really helped reinforce for me is that we need to rethink our assumptions about work as the first choice option for improving women's safety and improving women's solvency. It turns out that not all domestic abuse happens at home, right? Abusers sometimes sabotage women's employment and their compliance with work requirements for receiving welfare. And when I was doing uh, some of my interview research with uh, welfare recipients who had also uh, experienced abuse, one of the days that I was set to interview, uh, they called me up and said, don't come, one of the boyfriends is out waving a knife in front of the welfare office. <laughs> and there's all kinds of ways that abuse can actually transfer, it's not all domestic, and it can transfer and spill over from home into work. And it turns out that um, that petitioning for a protective order uh, is accompanied by a lot of economic instability, some of which is probably caused by the abuse, and some of which is probably generated when a woman tries to keep herself and her children safe or escape from the abuse. So one-size-fits-all policies, especially those that require a woman to earn her way out of being trapped by abuse, are unlikely to help diverse women face multiple obstacles. You know, if if they want to live a safer, more economically secure life, Uh, they're going to need something other than just being told, well, get a job and that'll make it all better, which is kind of the message that the mainstream has been sending to battered women for probably close to 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, to to be fair, I mean, I think 
uh, that early researchers and people who work in the field recognize that when a woman is not economically secure, she's at a disadvantage. So, well, it would be logical, you know, then to, you know, have her get a job so she can be more economically secure. Um, but like many things, you know, sometimes you have to lift up and look under in order to find out the true, um, um, you know, what's really going on. And that's where research comes in. It helps us. Uh, I, at least that's how I refer to it: is lifting up and looking under, uh, in order to uh, analyze some of these problems. So, uh, my my kids get tired of me saying "lift up and look under," um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's very good advice, and um, a lot of advocacy programs, especially since um, the mid '90s and the rescission of entitlements to welfare in this country, um, a lot of service providers and a lot of advocates have really been banging on the work drum, uh, partly because that seemed like a way that we were going to be able to uh, convince policymakers that women could actually uh, do something to make their own lives better. And, of course, increasing women's economic independence um, is a good outcome no matter what. It's just that thinking of work as the single way to get women out of abuse and also out of poverty because there are lots and lots of jobs in this economy that won't lift you out of poverty. And that's an, a really important fact kind of one of those brute facts of life that it's very central to keep in mind when you're dealing with these complicated problems about abuse and work and poverty. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, that what your point is very well taken, that, you know, many people are working two or three jobs and barely getting by because that's the nature of our employment today. Um, but the other factor about employment is that it, it can often be rife with abuse. It can be rife with coercive control. It can be rife with bullying. And that is not, you know, I, uh, under the best of circumstances, it's difficult for people to deal with that. But nevertheless, they manage to deal with it because they have to earn their livings, blah, blah, blah. But if you're going through or have gone through um, uh, domestic violence or interpersonal violence, it, 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 that might be more than you can handle. I think that's that's a really great insight, Heather. And I think that there are actually several ways that uh, work and abuse um, can can contradict one another and can be a problem for the same woman. So not only is there the problem of sexual harassment at work and um, abuse from an employer or a coworker, but also the ways that as I mentioned before, abuse sometimes spills over from home into work. And coercive control in particular often involves uh, abusive and controlling men calling their uh, girlfriends, you know, 20 times in an hour and harassing them at work or showing up on site at work and uh, shoplifting from the employer or assaulting them in the parking lot or threatening either their coworker or um, threatening their uh, welfare service provider. Right? There's, a, there's a host of ways that work itself can be almost impossible, right? It can be it can be very, very difficult to be that ready-to-work person that you're supposed to be if you're a welfare recipient and you're uh, in a welfare-to-work transition program. It can be very, very difficult to be that ready-to-work person if um, you're dealing with either the presence of an abuser in your life or you're dealing with the fallout from um, abuse in your life. And that can include everything from physical injuries and head injuries to all kinds of post-traumatic stress as well. So it's a, it's a very, very good point that um, these issues of employment aren't uh, disconnected from the issues of abuse on any level. 
I think I mentioned to you that I'm actually working on a, 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 a trying to put together some research on uh, long-term effects of domestic violence for the workplace, and one of those uh, uh, studies that I found is so close to what you're saying about victims being victim uh, people being victimized at work. Um, there's a 2012 study by Postmus Plummer, McMahon, etc., and they in their study they found 78 percent of victims. In the in their study in their in their study group, were victimized at work by their abuser. So seventy eight percent of those those people experienced their abusers actually victimizing them at work. That's a lot of interference at the workplace. It certainly and is, and and some of it is, you know, is spillover that happens uh, where when the abuser follows women to work, um, there can also be conflicts over work, um, for example, when the woman is interested in working and um, the controlling abuser is more interested in her conforming to uh, domesticity and uh, being a housekeeper and taking care of the kids, so there can be conflicts over her working, and there can be uh, conflicts over, you know, her shift work and the scheduling of her work, and so work can be a source of all kinds of conflict and abuse. And then when it when it actually means the abuser is following her to work, that's a whole another kettle of fish. And that yeah. the posthumous work is great, and there there are several people who are doing quite good work on work related uh, control, abuse, and sabotage. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the factors that we didn't discuss, and, and I don't know how or whether it plays into your study, but I think we need to mention it, and that is child, children, the factor of children. Is there a difference? Uh, were you able to look at whether or not children, uh, you know, was it different for women with children or without children, or were you not able to determine that? Well, our data um, didn't include whether the women had children or not, unless they were welfare recipients. So we didn't have those data for all of the women who petitioned for protective orders. We only had those data for the women who were welfare recipients. So, um, And the, the data aren't perfect about figuring out if the number of people who were on the welfare case um, is equal just to the woman who's the primary adult plus uh, the children in the household. or You know, there was a little bit of murk <laughs> in those no. data, and because we didn't have them for everyone, um, we weren't able to do much of that modeling. But we know from a lot of other research that... Um, having children is one of the things that may make uh, battered women especially reluctant to leave the relationship. Um, They may be concerned about having resources uh, at a shelter. They may not be able to shelter uh, all of their children, especially if they have teenage boys. Yep. And um, it can make women a lot more vulnerable uh, if they have children and they have to worry about supporting um, a household. It can make it much harder for them to uh, leave the abuser. And it's a very good reason that lots of battered women don't want the relationship to stop. They want the abuse to stop. Well, and of course you've got, I mean, there are so many good, legitimate reasons for a, a, a woman to not leave a relationship, that it can be worse for her if she leaves. And one of those, of course, is the children, because if you're at home and you're with your children, you can protect them, you can shuffle them aside, you can do this, you can do that, but you split up and chances are really great that that abuser is going to have access, long-term access to those children without any supervision uh, whatsoever. Um, so I think that you know that's a, a huge factor. It's a huge factor. And if you split up with children, yeah, you you get child support maybe, 
<laughs> maybe. And even if you do get it, it's not enough to really, you know, I mean, it doesn't really usually um, uh, come close to really taking care of it. So you still have this huge burden. So, um, yeah, all sorts of factors involved in there, especially when you add the children. I really liked your point about, you know, the the you know, being cognizant of the fact that work is not the answer. Just getting her a job is not going to necessarily solve her problems. And I think that that's one of the things that I liked about your study is that I have not really actually seen that addressed before. So thank you for that. I I think that that's a a really uh, great contribution to what we're learning about uh, abusive relationships and what helps women. I do have a question on the chat room, and it's a really good one. Where are you going to go from here with your studies? Are you going to do any kind of follow-up on the study? So uh, one of the places that we're headed next is to really start to think much more about on the policy side of things. And so we're going to spend some more time kind of unpacking uh, things on the welfare side. Uh, we have this data that spans before and after the rescission of welfare in the mid-1990s. So we'll actually be able to see whether the relationship between petitioning and women's earnings shifted before or after welfare reform. Um, And this was, in fact, one of the central motivations for Lisa when she started the study was to really try to unpack some of the effects of policy change on these relationships. And we're really just getting there. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, Lisa, wh- where, what do you want to? Where do we, What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want? <laughs> what do you want to do in, in ten years? Where do you want this whole issue of women and policy, uh, especially uh, when we talk about domestic violence and interpersonal violence? Where, where, where do you envision us going? Where do you want us to be going as a as a culture, as a society? Well, I hope that we are recognizing that. Battering is a matter of uh, absolute equality and uh, human rights for for women, and that whether we're talking about the effects at work or we're talking about the effects on the ability to parent or we're talking about the effects on women's personhood, that uh, as a culture, we need to be really saying um, not just don't hit women, but let's really change and address all of the uh, deeper cultural issues that go into the notion that women are an okay target for men's coercive control. So I'm hoping to change how we're thinking about uh, gender, and I'm also hoping to change by the the work that I'm doing more more recently um, on teen dating violence is really trying to change how young people feel about uh, what relationships are supposed to be like, and especially so that young men get it that they don't have to establish or maintain their masculinity by controlling the young women who they're involved with, but that, in fact, equal relationships are a lot more fun and sexy than relationships that are grossly unequal. Mm-hmm. When we talk, I, I have two kids. I have a son and a daughter who are in early adulthood, and um, I I talk to them a a lot about these kinds of issues. It's interesting to me, uh, my daughter will identify as a feminist, but reluctantly. (laughs) You know, when, you know, it's kind of interesting to me um, how, um, I'm trying to pick my words here, how feminism is not necessarily perceived as anything that somebody, that young people want to be, you know, jump on a wet bandwagon for. Is it possible, you think, based on some of your research and some of the work you're doing, to separate that whole notion of feminism from the issues that we traditionally consider uh, feminism in order to make them more palatable for young people to understand? And, and do, you, do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah, but I think 
throwing the F word under the bus is not the way to go. I think that showing young people that uh, women who are large and in charge and um, a world that dismantles the mandatory marking of difference and the naturalization of difference and of male dominance, right? We don't we don't want to live in a world um where uh that inequality and difference is just kind of senselessly reinforced. And feminism has always been as simple as the claim that women are people and if we can um go a little bit further than that. I mean, I know it's a stretch. <laughs> about protection. 
protection orders, but I did find one that's kind of amusing and, uh, like most things that are funny, also kind of true. And this is from a, a man named Ryan Lilly, whom I do not know. A professional headshot in front of a bookshelf says you're an intellectual. A professional headshot peeking through a bookshelf says you're probably under a restraining order. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Ladies, thank you so much. Uh, Continue with your research. Uh, Thank you for sharing. I I really understand your study more. I understand the whole issue of domestic violence a little bit better because you've been with us. So thank you um, very much. Join us again next week. Um, We're working on – I don't have the show lined up for next week, but I'll tell you, I'll give you a little hint. I'm lining up the show, I think, talking about memory and the effects memory have in our in our lives. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us again next week on Freeway. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.